feeling. I'm very tired. Yeah, we're recording in the middle of the day here. Normally we're at night, but uh, we're in the middle of the work day because of scheduling. And so your mind's probably not really on recording right now. It's not really, I haven't really done any work today because I read the article that we will talk about. And uh, yeah, we actually have a topic today. Yeah, yeah, we do. Imagine that. I trained with Sensei for an hour last night, so I'm very sore and I guess I didn't sleep very well. I don't know. I don't know why I wouldn't have, but yeah, I'm just very tired. By trained with, you mean had your ass kicked by? Yes. <laughs> Basically, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I was training with a black belt last night, so that's that's why. But um yeah, what is what is today? It's hump day, Wednesday. that means Wednesday. That means Wednesday. That means that I have three more days to do this thing that I don't want to do. And I'm avoiding doing it by doing other things that I've been needing to do. <laughs> uh, code-wise, that is. So that's my week so far is I'm drumming up stuff in Trello so that I don't have to do the thing that I don't want to do. <laughs> hey, man. I mean, you do what you got to do. It's kind of like circling the drain. I was going to think of like, it's like a death. It's not like a spiral because you're not really spiraling anywhere. You're just, yeah. you're just circling. You're just the... There's just the wagon train yeah. of the thing you don't want to do, and you're just going around. The stuff I've been doing is have been needing to do for a while. Uh, it's all Mailgun-related stuff. So we use Mailgun for sending emails, and we send a whole heap of emails. Uh, but we also have a whole heap of emails that you know, are, are undeliverable or bounce or suppressed or whatever. And... We have our own un, un, like we have our own email subscription system built into DK, but the early for like the early six months, eight months, there we hadn't built that yet, so we were relying on mail guns, unsubscribe stuff. So you can insert like a snippet into the footer, and they'll swap out. I think it's like percent unsubscribe underscore link percent, and then they'll swap that out with the live unsubscribe link. And what that does is when someone clicks on that, it unsubs them from either all communications. So it'll kind of like remove, uh, it'll, it'll basically suppress any emails, uh, for any campaigns going to the email or if you're using tags, they have like a tagging feature. It'll, it'll unsub, unsub that email from that specific tag, for example. So we have that built into our system because, uh, we, you know, when we're queuing up emails, we'd rather not send an email if we know it's going to get suppressed <laughs> because that's wasted money basically. Uh, so we have all that stuff now. And so what I'm doing, um, yesterday and today is yesterday I deployed some webhook, a webhook endpoint from Mailgun. So whenever an event happens, whether it's an unsubscribe, whether it's a, um, spam complaint, which doesn't really happen often, but it, sometimes it does. Uh, whether it's like a failed bounce. So if Mailgun tries to deliver an email three times and each three delivery attempts fail, then they send us uh, um, a hook saying, hey, this failed. What we do is we just unsub that email from our database. So we just update their record in our database. So we were talking privately a little bit, little bit about how you wanted to sort of organize the code. And it's kind of confusing because a webhook is inherently a web-related thing, mm -hmm. but you also have to trigger business logic based off of that that's kind of decoupled from the webhook. So what what did you end up doing there? How did you end up dividing dividing the, the code responsibility? Oh, yeah. So the only thing that's called webhook is the controller. It's a webhook controller because we have like Stripe webhooks and we have other webhooks that come in that we monitor. 
So I just have a webhook controller and there's a stripe action and there's a mailgun action and the actual logic. So really the controller just takes the payload from who was ever sending the hook and it sends it straight through to a, a module, a context module. So in this case uh, for mailgun, we have an email subscriptions context and that handles all of the logic around updating and creating and, and changing email subscriptions in our database. And there's a module, I think it's uh, email subscriptions.mailgun now, and that handles any mailgun specific stuff. I didn't really know where else to put it. I didn't really want to create like a, it didn't really feel right to make a services namespace or anything like that. And mailgun's strictly related to email subscriptions anyway. So um, the controller calls email subscriptions.mailgun.process event, I think it's called. And that takes the whole payload. And then what I do in, in the in the module is I verify the signature. So that way I can know that it actually did come from Mailgun and someone's not trying to spoof us. And from there, I just pattern match off of the type of event, whether it's unsubscribe or fail. Um, and then I do the thing that I need done. Cool. And you didn't need to use any third-party libraries or anything, right? It's just, just parsing the JSON payloads, basically. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's really, it's, yeah, there's zero external libraries. It was really simple, actually. And the hardest part was verifying the signature, and that wasn't hard. It took me a couple <laughs> minutes. You know, and like, it's all tested, too. So I have tests verifying that the verification, like the signature verifications work and verifying, you know, that I'm doing the right thing with the, the correct payload. So in my test module, I have uh mock mock uh valid event and mock invalid event and so the invalid event will have an invalid signature payload and i just test that you know if it's an invalid event then i return an error instead of actually doing anything and then i have tests you know saying like i have another a function called a mock event which just builds a a map that would match whatever mailgun would send us and um, yeah, so that actually takes a keyword list that I uh, enum into a map, and then that way you can kind of build a valid uh, mailgun event payload that way with just a function. And my tests just use that to make sure that I'm watching for the correct events and I'm doing the correct thing when those events come in. So it's actually really, really simple implementation-wise. Cool. So today I am doing the other half of that, and I'm writing a recurring job to kind of use Mailgun's API to clean up already existing things. So like the, the, the webhooks work for new things coming in. Like if an email used to be deliverable, but now suddenly it's not for some reason or a person unsubscribes outside of our unsubscribe stuff, which shouldn't be able to happen, uh, the webhook will catch that. So now I'm today I'm writing a job that just kind of trolls their API for updated records and those unsubscribes, and then we'll update our database accordingly. Okay, cool. Yeah, so you uh, you mentioned something to me yesterday and I was explaining this to you. I can't remember what it was. I was talking about, I was like, well, you know, the other thing that I'm going to be doing that I don't want to do, that I'm avoiding right now, uh, will eventually affect the bottom line, but this also immediately affects the bottom line in reducing the expense. So there's like two different ways that you can affect the bottom line. And that's number one, um, add something that someone will actively pay for. And number two, reduce the actual expenses of running the business. And Makes sense. Yeah, this mailgun thing reduces the expenses of running the business because we have a number, and it's not an obscene number of 
uh, bounces or whatever that we're paying for, but Mailgun does charge you for delivery attempts and suppressions because you're still hitting their infrastructure. So for me, I was like, okay, well, things are growing pretty quickly here, so this could get out of control and cost a lot of money. So this is maybe the easiest way. I mean, like the whole thing is like, it's kind of like performance, right? You want to figure out what's the least amount of work you can do to have the, the biggest impact on performance. So this is like, what's the least amount of work that I can do to impact the bottom line? And this is it, wherein I'm removing basically wasted money that is being uh, sunk into sent emails that don't actually get delivered. Now, you guys send a ridiculous amount of emails, right? I don't know if you have disclosed or want to disclose that number, but it's a lot. It's a lot of money. It's around a million right now. A million emails per month, transactional yeah. emails. Transaction. Well, yeah, well, yeah, not all transactional, but they're they're not like user triggered. They're event based. Um, got things. it, got it. But still, like that's that's not a small bill. <laughs> no. So yeah, any amount you can you can any amount of time you spend, it's gonna pay for itself pretty quickly on that. And yeah, I think what we were talking about was ways you could make it smarter, basically, right? Yeah, by, by yeah. using kind of gathering metrics about how often people view things or how often they're on the site, and kind of be more targeted in in how you send them out. I mean, that's just you could do that forever and never get it right, but. Yeah, I think that's what you just reminded me of what you said. You said measure before measure before acting upon or something like that. Basically measuring, yeah. So like I, I think I was talking about using, so they have, if you use their tagging API, then the analytics in Mailgun, they they can show you a breakdown like interactions uh, across your different campaigns that are sent and different tags that are sent. So the big, it, it's difficult because I feel like mo- a lot of companies are like this. It's It's whenever a new feature is added, the marketing people will, will say something like, now this goes out to all of the users and contacts, right? And I don't always like that. So I'm always the first one to say, why should a person receive an email for this? Why would they want to? And I mean, the most important thing for me is making sure that if a person does receive some sort of email, that they cannot receive that ever again, very easily. And so I've, I've built, Paul and I spent a lot of time building out a granular system so that way people can unsubscribe from things that they don't want and get things that they still want. Or with a single click, they can just get rid of all of it. If they don't want to hear anything from us, then they click a single button on our site and that's it. I love the email subscriptions where you unsubscribe and it says, you'll be unsubscribed in 7 to 14 days. Oh, or they send you another email saying, hey, you've been unsubscribed. Like, yes, I know. <laughs> It drives me insane. We don't do any of that because it drives me insane. And it's not like we fight with the salespeople, but it's like, I feel like I'm sort of like the watchman on the wall for the inboxes of people that are associated with Design Collective and customers and contacts that are associated with the stores on our platform. So we go through a lot of uh, thinking and a lot of just tape to make sure that that information's safe and not shared across stores and, and all that stuff. But yeah, so I mean, like you're, you're saying, another way to reduce costs there is, do we have to be sending a million? Is there a campaign that's not performing well that we don't need to be sending at all? And like I said, the default kind of thing that people want to do in thinking about sales and engagement is just send, like notify of all the things, you know, uh, because if there's a notification, there's a chance for engagement there. But maybe maybe the notification isn't performing well or maybe it's having an adverse effect. And how else would you know that unless you're measuring? Yeah, that's one of the major tenets of the Lean Startup, which I think we mentioned before, we'll put in the show notes, but always measuring before you're acting. That way you're not just 
kind of guessing and not really understanding what's happening. It makes sense, but when you you know when you say it out loud, it sounds stupid. But of course, you would you would want to right. you know measure things before you before you act and and you know A B test and all these other things. But uh, sometimes we as developers, it's it's easier to just change the thing than it is to actually gather data about changing the thing. And so you almost don't even want to put in the extra work, but you don't want to, you also don't want to spend time doing something that's not going to have any effect. So yeah, metrics are important. Yeah, that's a good point. You don't want to spend time doing something if it's not going to matter. It's it's hard, especially, I mean, we both are, I mean, you're a one-person dev shop, I'm a two-person dev shop. And that's that's a valid concern that I have sometimes is, People will will ask for a certain change, and I'm thinking to myself, well, does that what does that even change? Like, you want to okay, so you have a couple of customers saying we want our hero image to be bigger, we want it bigger, 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 and in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, they want it bigger, but it doesn't. They're not the expert in terms of, and I'm not saying like I don't listen to our customers, but there's there's a line between like, okay, they just they want something done because aesthetically it pleases them versus. Uh, what are the implications of that change? If you make the header so much bigger, then there, there's not going to be any products above the quote unquote fold. Or, you know, a person's going to, all they're going to see is a fat image of a dining table and maybe a profile pic of the store, you know what I mean? And and not anything usable to the customer, not any sort of CTA or anything like that. So that's something that Paul's been working on is gathering information and kind of pr- like making a presentation for are for Lindsay saying, okay, okay, well, here's what it looks like across different sizes, contrasting with here's what here's what Facebook size, how Facebook sizes things, right? Because even though Facebook's not necessarily selling products, you know that there's a lot of research gone into how how, how high should the header be, and how does that affect affect engagement and stuff like that. So I think I think we're going to talk about this more next week, but uh, Chris McCord's ElixirConf was just this this past weekend. And Chris McCord's keynote uh, talks about Phoenix 1.4 and how they're integrating like a standard interface for doing metrics, hmm. just, you know, for performance measuring, but also for, you know, measuring conversions and any kind of marketing stuff you need okay. tracking, uh, you know, web stuff. So that's nice to know. Yeah, we'll we'll talk more about that, but that's that's coming and that's cool to make this stuff a lot easier. Yeah. And, you know, open up to any kind of metrics clients because it'll be a standard interface for that. So that'll be cool. That's it. That's very exciting because I'm going to have to build something or I was going to have to build something uh, for that eventually. Uh, Yeah. So I kind of derailed the, we did have a topic uh, and you're talking about the, the Elixir Conf keynote. Was it the keynote? Was he the keynote this year? He was, I think he does a keynote on the second day. I think Jose does a keynote on the first day. Yeah. Well, yeah. So in a roundabout way, that reminded me about this Discord article that they published. I think it was this week. It was pretty recently, right? Yeah, this week. Yeah. And they published an article. So they have a few articles that are really, really good reads. And they, you know, they obviously use Elixir. And the title of the article was how Discord handles two and a half million concurrent voice users using WebRTC. And yeah, they have a whole engineering blog here, by the way. It looks like about once a month, they put a good implementation detail heavy post on this engineering blog. So definitely check that out. But this particular post is, uh, yeah, how Discord handles two and a half million concurrent voice users using WebRTC. Yeah. So, I mean, I read through it this morning because I knew we were going to talk about it. So I figured I should probably read it, read the article. And the first, what's what's cool? This is really this really stuck out to me. Well, let's let's back up. Let's back up for a second. So, Discord, if you're not people aren't familiar, Discord is a you know chat 
uh, program just like Slack, right? Web-based primarily, built on web technologies. Uh, also as a native client, um, it's targeted mostly for gamers, you know, has real-time voice and video chat for for those kind of things. And it's in, as far as I know, it's almost entirely backed by Elixir and probably Erlang, right? Yeah, I mean, all I can gather from their their tool chain is what they post on uh, Medium, and they talk about Elixir a lot. They have some homegrown stuff. Like they have one of the things we'll mention is they made an in-house. Uh, basically, it seemed like a routing uh, service uh, in out of C plus plus. So I think like most of the services are Elixir backed, though. Yeah, and their front end is all React, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, we're using Discord right now, actually, to to chat with each other. And it's, yeah, like you said, it's geared towards the gaming community, I guess. But I've always been really impressed with how performant everything is. Everything just works really, really well. Uh, and everything's pretty solid. It's funny because people complain about Electron apps as being, you know, RAM heavy and slow and sluggish. And that's, you know, how a lot of apps are. That's how Slack definitely is and and other electron apps that I've used, but man, Discord is just always <laughs> so fast yeah. and so good. Like it's, it just, it's nothing about inherent with electron. It's just whatever tech they're using underneath to build it. But they've, they've been able to keep, keep Discord pretty snappy. Yeah. They've done a great job. And you know, with the Mac app and having it available as a Mac app an iOS app an Android app on the web, just universally everywhere is, is pretty cool. But yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a good service. It's good. It's a good thing. So this, yeah, this article is particularly interesting to me because we utilize WebRTC very, very heavily on Roadham Radio. I mean, that's how we do our our peer-to-peer audio connections as well as sending data and all kinds of other stuff uh, between the users and the the ham radio sites. And and we're using WebRTC in a a very traditional sense. Like it's literally peer-to-peer. It's it's you are one peer, you're, you know, the, the person sitting in front of your computer, you're the peer. And then at the remote station... It's a one-to-one connection, right? They're just the other peer, and you're only talking to that one station at a time. Mm-hmm. You don't have multiple sessions open at once, right? And so that's kind of what WebRTC was designed for, and it happens to work really, really well for our use case. And uh, we use two different types of WebRTC peers on the other end. So, like, I was able to get WebRTC actually compiled with, like, Swift integration, so when you connect to a remote ham radio site, it spins up a little Swift command line application that starts the WebRTC mm. peer, and then it and then it coordinates all the communications between that. Why why specifically Swift there? Um, because all our servers are Macs, and Swift was just easy, and I could get the the WebRTC library bindings to work. In it. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Or what I did try to do like Node. There are Node bindings for WebRTC, but they didn't support all the features we needed to. So that would have been better because it would have been a little more cross platform. But sure, compiling native libraries with Node is is a pain so forget that but what they do with discord and this is really, really interesting so when discord you can have gigantic servers with tens hundreds of thousands of people connect all at once right so like that obviously doesn't scale from peer to peer so they have this crazy thing they call it the sfu is that right yeah i was just looking at that let me find it again that's the thing that they wrote i think right selective forwarding unit so it's a signaling component that forwards it's basically a proxy it's just an audio and video proxy it kind of i guess it must do multicast Hmm. right but it's written entirely in c plus plus like you said so it's going to be really really performant and it does this thing where like if you're not talking it just doesn't send any bytes 
like normally with WebRTC, if you if you have dead air, right, it's still sending data, right? There's still certain kilo, kilobytes per second that are being sent. It's just small. Mm-hmm. But here they actually just completely pause the stream. If you if you're not transmitting, if push to talk or you know Vox is not enabled, uh, you're sending zero bytes, which is you know that's a huge custom thing that they did that you know really cuts down on their their bandwidth. Yeah, what's that, what's that section? That was another cool thing that stuck out to me is they have a section on how like the difference between the web version. So if you're using Discord in a web browser like Chrome, the differences between that and using their Mac app or their native apps because they do they kind of build on top of the native uh, WebRTC implementations to do things that make the experience better. So uh, to me that when I remind, when I read that, it reminded me of like the reverse of graceful degradation, I guess. So like it, you know, the basic, like the basic experience works pretty well in, in the browser. But when you, when you get the app, you get uh, things like better auto audio ducking and better audio control because it integrates with the system audio control and, they they can access like the raw audio data, so they do like you you're saying voice activity detection and stuff like that. Uh, so it's kind of cool how it works. It works pretty well, and then it works even better if you're using kind of their controlled uh, environment. Would be the opposite of graceful degradation, degradation right. like graceful enhancement. <laughs> yeah, progressive enhancement is the term I'm thinking about. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's like a huge. I mean, anyone can build a WebRTC app. It's it's there's tutorials online. You can follow the tutorials and a couple lines of JavaScript. All the major browsers support it now. Uh, looking at you, Safari, <laughs> but Safari is coming soon. And but this this sort of these little nitty gritty details, like you mentioned, uh, integration with the Windows, you know, communication devices, uh, audio control panels. You know, their overlays, their custom controls, the reducing bandwidth and CPU usage, like all that stuff is so custom, but it really, it does make the experience that much better. It really comes down to it. And that's, that's what gives them such an advantage over like, oh, I could build Discord myself. Like, yeah, not, not like this. Right. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing the lengths they go through to, to make it so seamless. Well, the scale is pretty wild too. So you mentioned just these gigantic, uh, these gigantic servers. So I'm in one called Viewland. I think it's like the official View Discord. And right now, at this very second, there are 1,700 users online on the Discord, plus <laughs> the core team and moderators and stuff. And I don't think I don't know if there's even a limit to a voice channel. So theoretically, you know, you could have a thousand. I think they actually mentioned this in the article. They mentioned that there was... Yeah, they do. There, They observed at one point, I want to say it was 1,000. Let me... 1,000. Yeah, we have seen 1,000 people taking turns speaking in a single voice channel. <laughs> what in the world? Yeah, so anyway, there's 1,700 people online. They could all just get into a voice channel and talk to each other. Yeah, and somehow, you know, voice conference in a conference room still fails to work properly. Right, but right, right. here we are. Yeah, but uh, it's it's snappy. It's so snappy. It's so fast. They also talk a lot about the backend failover stuff and how what happens when a server gets DDoSed. What happens when they do upgrades? What happens when a crash happens? Right. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's all again, it's all Elixir. And so it sounds like what they do is they basically when the server, well, basically when you when you start a new voice call, it it picks a server with low load and assigns you that sort of room to 
a particular server and then other people that join also just join up on that server mm-hmm. makes sense so all the communication is you know local it's not going across uh the land there and then but if that server goes down it basically dumps all its state to another server and then notifies all the clients and then they all just go reconnect to the other thing and it happens like you basically will almost never even notice it right it's just a little blip and then it reconnects right yeah I've, i mean I've, I've observed this firsthand where uh, I've been moved, like I noticed that my voice status changed from connected and it was about a second and then everyone was back in again, which I was like, oh, that was weird. I didn't even really think anything of it at the time. But now reading this failover stuff, I was like, oh, the node must have went down. So we just got put on a new one and it, I didn't have to do anything. It just sort of happened in the background, which was which was pretty cool. And you mentioned the um, the state. Uh, this is another one of the the things I thought was coolest about this article is they actually show code uh, in in how they in what the voice state uh, struct actually looks like. So they actually show the Elixir struct for voice state, and it it shows you like they store the session ID, the user ID, the channel ID. If you're currently muted, if you've been muted by uh, somebody else, and yeah, so they actually linked to docs. I thought that was really cool, but it kind of allows you to paint that picture so you can kind of see how it works in your mind. So if you look at the struct and you read about the failover, the fail, the failover paragraphs, and they talk about how the SFU just goes through and notifies, Hey, we're on a new thing. Now I found a new thing connected to this and the States just update themselves. And then suddenly everyone's talking again. And the fact that that happens so quickly is kind of computers. The fact that computers are as fast as they are kind of hurts my, my mind most of the time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, computers can be fast, but have to fa- fast and maintainable code is is pretty amazing. Yeah, what I mean, so another in another part, uh, yeah, operating at scale, they said they're running more than eight hundred and fifty voice servers in thirteen regions, hosted in more than thirty data centers. Yeah, and they're on the Google Cloud platform. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's funny because like eight hundred fifty servers, let's see thirteen regions. So, I mean, that's that's a lot of servers, but it's not like. A lot, a lot of servers. <laughs> that's in the realm that's like, you know, if it's automated enough, that's pretty manageable, especially because they're spread about, cr- spread out over all those different regions, right? Yeah. It, it seems to me like they have some operating excess on purpose and not, it's not like they have just servers sitting around, but they have, so they talk about like mitigating uh, DDoS attacks and things like that. So basically how that works is almost this, in the same way as how the failover stuff works if a node goes down. So if the was what was it the SFU the thing that they built that kind of monitors things so if they notice a large spike like a, a large large spike in traffic uh, on a certain node then SFU actually just takes it out of the registry of services that the voice like out of the the is that what you call it like the, in the service discovery it'd be like the registry of nodes that are available to connect to yeah pretty much yeah, yeah. so it just says like oh you uh, you're on timeout until the, the DDoS goes away and then they'll be like, all right, you're available now again. So it just kind of like takes it out of the registry. So the other services just can't discover it. And when I first read that, I was like, oh, that seems really elegant. It just removes it from the available connections. Yeah. So obviously they're using, you can't really rely on a standard load balancer or something. You're basically doing a load balancing in software, right? Because you have yeah. all the custom logic in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. But 850 servers, I mean, they're, you know, there's enough there to handle DDoS. There's enough there to like route people to new servers. There's enough there to, and like you said, 850 servers to me sounds like an obscene amount because it's design collective has three. Uh, we have three servers, uh, but it's, they're able to serve more than 2.6 million concurrent voice users. 
and more than 220 uh, gigabits per second. And what is that? 120 million packets per second. That's just as that's an obscene uh, scale. Yeah, it's an interest, interesting thing with the way they're doing it because normally, again, WebRTC is peer to peer, and so when you when you're setting up a when you are hosting a WebRTC session, basically, all you have to do is, as someone who's setting it up, you just have to kind of provide uh, transport so the two things can kind of talk to each other and like do their handshakes and send their codecs and figure out what IPs are available and what ports are available and all that other stuff. Right? You basically coordinate the connection and then the actual data gets sent peer-to-peer if yeah. available yeah yeah so by peer-to-peer uh you mean just like computer a is connected directly to computer b right and that's cool because you don't spend any bandwidth doing that right it's all on the you know just you don't have to deal with the bandwidth now if there is double natting uh you have to provide uh it's called a stun server or stun slash turn server which basically uh, I think the turn part basically lets the two things determine their own IP addresses, and then stun is the actual tunneling that occurs. Hmm. And it's just a little open source process. You just run it, and you just point your thing at it, and it just works. But it's actually kind of magical how it works, because if the two things can't establish a direct connection to each other, then they automatically fall back to this relay, where that now you have to eat the traffic. You have to take the traffic from one peer and send it to the other oh i see what you're saying okay yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, which is it's cool because it's 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 magical how well like we never once we got that set up we've never had issues like people can always connect right Uh, okay and if you don't have that if they're like in hotel rooms was the common one if you're in a hotel room you don't have that really server set up you just will never ever be able to connect to anything because there's so many layers of firewalls and stuff between you and the outside i yeah okay but what's interesting about Discord is they're proxying every call, right? And again, we have the, they have these optimizations with the the muting and stuff, but still that's that's gonna be probably their biggest cost and performance driver is the just the sheer amount of bandwidth from sending the audio data back and forth. Which is probably why they custom wrote something in C because it'd be as fast as it possibly can be. Yeah, and I really, really wish the thing about WebRTC is it's still really new and the 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 core again the core story of the peer to peer thing works great browser to browser but there's not a lot of good server based or like headless WebRTC things that you can connect to right like i would love to have access to this a media relay server where where you can use WebRTC the clients can use WebRTC but not in a peer-to-peer fashion, a multicast fashion where I could send out my audio and broadcast to multiple people and it would just like mad, you know, work like I expect or do video, right? Like that, Mm -hmm. that stuff doesn't seem the off the shelf stuff I've seen is very, very complicated in the sense that it's, it's designed for almost like SIP and like telephony and all these like crazy other old protocols. Like just give me like a nice modern WebRTC clean process server thing that I can run, set up and tell it, you know, who can connect to what and do it securely, right? I think I think there's a really real need for that. I mean, we could definitely use it, right? How cool would it be if if you could connect to an RHR site and then like five other people could connect up and just listen to you, right? Yeah. And or, you know, multiple people could share a call together basically. I think mean, that would be so cool if I could just roll that out of the box. But as far as I know, it just doesn't exist right now. So I you know, again, that's what gives Discord their competitive advantage what they're doing, but 
Yeah, so you mean you don't want to have to build your own gateway and discovery services and proxy that traffic yourself? <laughs> like you said, I'm just a one-man shop over here. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar uh, with that feeling. Just I'm just one person or just two people. Uh, I think I was mentioning earlier, the very first paragraph really stuck out to me. Uh, it says, from the very start, we made very conscious engineering and product decisions to keep Discord well-suited for voice chat while playing your favorite game with your friends. These decisions enable us to massively scale our operation with a small team and limited resources. So the first part is we made very conscious engineering and product decisions to keep Discord well-suited for voice chat while playing your favorite games. So that's to me is like their their mission statement. This is what we want to do uh, in enabling voice chat while playing games with your friends. And to do that, they made very conscious, very, to me that reads as very specific, very uh, deliberate decisions to keep that scope uh, small. And that was something that, I, that's something that I'm still learning and something I'm learning uh, about how difficult it is to do because there's like all these sayings out there, like I've heard people say like every app evolves to a certain point until it involves chat, you know, <laughs> uh, or messaging, like live messaging and chat and all that stuff. So there's, there's services out there. It's like, why did you add chat? There's no, there's no reason for this to have a live chat functionality, but that's kind of like the illustration of the problem, right? So the scope grows and grows and grows and you're adding and adding and adding when really maybe it doesn't serve what you're actually trying to do. And so that's like a constant thing that Paul and I think about with Design Collective is when feature requests come in, we think, does this actually make sense and does this serve our core mission statement? It might be a cool bell and whistle that might be neat to have, but is it something we need uh, to be a successful business? And most of the time that's a no. It's a it's a concrete no most of the time, but it's it's hard because it's a community decision. So I mean, we we're Paul and I are the programmers and the tech people, but we also have the salespeople that work with the customers. So Paul and I aren't talking to customers every single day, whereas the salespeople are, or our customer relations people are talking to those customers. So you know, it's hard to keep keep the the ship going in the same direction when there's like winds coming from the left and winds coming from the right and like winds coming from below. If that makes sense, I think it's also important to point out that Discord has added features at least from the outside, relatively slowly, I think, like at a slow pace. And when they do add features, they're very targeted and very solid mm-hmm. in their implementation, right? I've never had buggy issues with Discord ever, right? But, and I think that speaks, again, to what you're saying, is that they're focusing on that core mission of providing basically the best voice chat experience for playing video games. Now, we're both gamers, more or less, uh, but I I actually have turned, like, all of my social chat is now on Discord. Yeah. Right? I, I used to use, we used to use, you know, yeah. this was ICQ back in the day, and then MSN, and AOL's Messenger, right? And then uh, we actually, I had one, <laughs> once all my friends switched to iOS devices, we would just use messages, except my one friend who was still on Android, so we would still chat on AIM. <laughs> Until they finally removed that from the Messages app on uh, on macOS. Or I think it's going away in Mojave. Anyway, all of my just regular non-gaming social discussions on Discord. And it's so great for that. But And, I, and I'm actually surprised they haven't pivoted to just turn into a general purpose uh, chat platform. Mm-hmm. Like social. But man, they're, they're so dedi- you know, dedicated to the, the gaming, serving the gaming audience. Yeah, I mean, they just added the game store thing too 
which yeah, I haven't even looked at that. Pushes it farther, but I most of my communications actually in Discord too. So I talk to you. I have my own little Discord uh, channel where I invite uh, people here and there to basically make fun of each other. And it's not. It's every most most of my friends are sarcastic, so we're just being sarcastic at each other and then talking about programming, which you know we try we try hard to make sure that everyone feels included and all that. But it's it's fun to have like a close knit group of friends that you can kind of joke around with and. Um, have at each other, I suppose. But yeah, most of my, I think the only communication I don't have is when I'm talking to family and stuff on iMessages and Jamie has a discord and she yells at me when I message her there instead, because then she has to keep that app <laughs> open. Uh, but my work stuff is in twist. And what's even funnier is that Paul and I just talk to each other on discord and then we talk to the rest of the team on twist. <laughs> Well, it is almost noon and I'm very hungry and I have to do my work today because I haven't done anything yet and I need to. So, uh, yeah, well, this is really cool. If you guys are interested at all in, in how a real company uses Elixir, because we're not real companies, uh, hey. check out this post. It's, it's, it's actually a pretty short read. It's only nine minutes according to this. And it's, it's very, very cool. And it does have little snippets of C++ and Elixir in there, which is, I think it's just great. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, as always, we're looking for feedback and suggestions and anything that you all might have, any ideas, any thoughts, any topic suggestions. Um, I've been kind of wanting to uh, pick out a feature. So we'll kind of like do a deep dive on a feature that we've built in the past and pick it apart and talk about how we implemented it and what we've learned in like hindsight kind of things. So that's something I want to do in the future as well. And so if anybody has any questions or suggestions for that, uh, let me know. That idea was actually from a listener. So uh, we are definitely going to try that in the future. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you guys know that your feedback is listened to. Yeah. Oh, also shout out to friend of the show, Kevin, who just got married. I was at his wedding the other night. And funnily enough, I ended up sitting at the table. The, the table I was sitting at, the guy sitting next to me was also a software engineer. So that was kind of funny because I've met two total in three years now in vermont so and that was that was one of them did you plug the show to him um no i i hardly ever do that because it makes <sighs> me on. feel weird well, i was in a band for a long time so i'm kind of like you're done promoting yeah well if you do want to uh, get in touch with us the twitter account for the show is dnc show uh sean's personal account is sean Washbot, and myself i am shrockwell over on the twitterverse and you can find our show notes at dnc.show Yep, and if you want real-time discussion and show notes as well, uh, that's over on spectrum.chat where we've got our own channel for the show as long as channels for lots of other development and design topics. So definitely check that out. We've got uh, some job boards too at spec.fm slash jobs. So if you're looking for a new job or just wanting to see what's out there, you can check that out. And as always, thanks to Spec for having us. Uh, they're, they've they've been really good to us in, in helping us kind of get things out the door. Uh, and if you're interested in other design and programming-related podcasts, they have some more great shows like Design Details, which is a weekly conversation about the design process and culture, uh, a show called Fragmented, which is an Android developer podcast where they talk about building software and learning more about uh, building Android apps, and another one called Swift Unwrapped, which is a weekly show containing the latest news uh, around the Swift world. I should check that out. Got to get back into this, the Swift world. That sounds pretty cool. So yeah, this uh, this week's episode of Does Not Compute has been edited by Mikhail Delport and produced by Sarah Jackson. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, see you next week, Sean. See ya.